Good afternoon. It's Friday, the 7th of August, 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Um, well, look, we're going to get started today. I had quite a number of emails in this morning, Patrick, about a, an article on the BBC website, uh, which people described as egregious propaganda, a disgrace, a whole host of different epithets being put on it. So here it is. Uh, what will coronavirus, sorry, this is what coronavirus will do to our offices and homes. Uh, and it's uh, one of these long form uh, articles with lots of nice uh, images and so on. And I thought we'd just briefly uh, run our way through it and see uh, what it is that they're talking about. So uh, first of all, we've got to meet uh, Lila, uh, who's going to take us through this. And uh, it's saying that in 2025, it's 2025 and she works from home four days a week. Uh, it's been that way since the 2020 lockdown. So we're getting a look into the future here. Uh, and uh, while well, she's working from home, uh, it's 6.30 in the morning. She's on her way to work. Uh, and, uh, well, it's wonderful because she arrives at her office building at 7 o'clock. Uh, start times at the company where she works are staggered. Uh, and her office days are mainly for meetings uh, because face-to-face -face contact is better, but uh, it's better than video conferencing. So, the, you know, we need to do it sort of once in a while. So once a week is what she's doing. The first thing that happens to her, of course, she has a temperature test. Uh, of course, this happens automatically as she walks into the building. Um, but strangely enough, um, she's having facial recognition uh, to allow her access to the building. Um, so clearly masks are not a problem on the long-term basis, Patrick. We don't need to worry about those because the BBC says so. Mm. Um, so that's good news. Uh, and, uh, well, let's see what happens next. Well, the lift only carries two people at a time, and there are no buttons in the lift. It's voice recognition, so you tell the lift where you want to go, uh, and that's good stuff. Uh, and uh, on the fourth floor, uh, she walks down a corridor, and the corridor is much wider than normal. It's been widened up to make sure that you can properly socially distance. Uh, uh, let's see what comes next. Uh, of course, there's hand sanitizers hand sanitizer everywhere, so you get to clean your hands as often as you like. Uh, the site, uh, uh, sorry, she sits down at a desk. Uh, much of the furniture, as well as the panels and facades, are made of an antimicrobial material that's easier to clean and harder for bacteria to stick to. Bacteria? I, I thought we were dealing with viruses here. I did too, so I guess this is because... Maybe there's a bacteria coming that the BBC haven't told us is coming, but they know it's coming. Well, this this may well be it. Uh, that could be the, the answer to that one. Uh, and, uh, of course, she still gets to chat to people, but only at a distance uh, as she makes coffee in the kitchen. Uh, so uh, we need, don't need to worry about it. Now, this is one I thought was quite interesting because the air conditioning system is going to use UV light to kill pathogens. Now, I wonder what happens to our immune systems, Patrick, uh, if we if we, you know, sanitize the air to this degree uh, and we are not exposed to any pathogens uh, at, at any time. Or any surfaces, not touching anything, not interacting with people. What's going to happen to the immune system? What do you think is going to happen to the immune system? I think it's possibly going to get weaker. That's what all the doctors, all of the medical experts are saying. So what, what the real medical community is saying is in stark contrast with what the media and government uh, and the business opportunists that are all hoping to cash in, Mike, on the new sort of COVID culture. So. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so we move on. What happens next? So we're going to have screens. The screens are going to be bolted to the floor, except when they're not bolted to the floor, because from time to time, 
we'll be able to unbolt the screens from the floor and put them into storage, but they'll be brought out again any time where there's an emergency. So why is that? In case somebody maybe gets a running start and sneezes at her from across the office and that screen will catch the COVID droplets, theoretically, yes? Yes, yes, yes. yes but, but you'll notice that... Uh, Everyone's sneezing on each other in this future, Mike. It's very dystopian. Yes, but you'll notice that in front of her desk, she doesn't have a screen because people don't like plastic, so she has some pot plants. Nice so the pot plants are going to catch her sneezes. Their sneezes will not burst through the other side. Uh, and uh, then uh, we go on to this. So uh, uh, Leila's uh, morning is spent in a meeting uh, about a new project, face-to-face -face with colleagues, all at a safe distance. Um, and, uh, you know, that's basically because video conferencing isn't so good. Uh, and then she goes home at 4 p.m., again, staggered uh, and... Uh, she uh, moved to the suburbs because she's not living in the centre of the city anymore. Uh, there's a reason for that. The reason is because the flat was just too small. And while it was OK for her to use her kitchen table in the early days, now that it's sort of formalised that she's working from home uh, four days a week, she really needs to uh, sort this problem out. So she's got herself a nice uh, place in the t on the upstairs of her suburban house, uh, which is now bigger than the flat in London, where she's got a stand-up desk. Now, it goes on to talk about this a little bit, and the thing that occurs to me here, Patrick, is, uh, of course, there are implications to people working from home on a long-term basis, uh, health and safety implications. Um, there, For example, just, just take something very simple like PAT testing. Is it going to be a requirement in the future that if you are employed by somebody who requires you to work at home four days a week, that you are then required to give them access to your home in order to maintain an office space in your home? Um, this seems to me to be a, a, you know, a reduction in the separation between uh, you know, government and you as an individual, plus also your employer and you as an individual, that they have some kind of right, implied right of access mm. uh, to sort out the health and safety aspects. Because you're your, under contract with them, abs right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, th I don't see how this, is, how this is desirable. Not only that, what about parents? Uh, what about parents who have kids? I mean... Uh, we're finding a lot of reports where they're saying they cannot work at home uh, with the kids around, especially if you know the kids aren't at school or if it's during half-term or holiday time. They simply can't get the work done at home. It's difficult. Uh, well, indeed, but they go on to say that she's uh, getting some new double glazing because, of course, uh, soundproofing was something that was never concerned, con uh, considered before. Um, so, and so it goes on. Uh, it is an amazing uh, article, uh, and it ends here. Uh, with this, um, the shape of things to come. We'll come on to that in a second. But here are the main sort of takeaways. The shift away from the city. Now, of course, uh, the internationalist policy has been to move people from the countryside into the cities. We're not talking about a move back out into the countryside here. We're talking about an expansion of the suburbs. In fact, what we're really talking about is an expansion of the cities outwards. Mm -hmm. uh, social distancing is going to require the cities to move outwards. Uh, and people uh, are going to have to commute one day a week, perhaps, according to the BBC here. Uh, the next thing that they're talking about is making the home work. Uh, so making your home an office, uh, formalizing that, as we've mentioned a second ago, and also the rise of uh, what they're describing as touchless technology. So voice recognition and so on uh, everywhere. We'll, we're, we've seen that developing over the last couple of years uh, with various little boxes that people put in their uh, homes from various providers. Uh, this is going to be uh, extended, but of course that really only works uh, with um, artificial intelligence put in place, so the, so the lift uh, 
will be uh, artificially intelligent, undoubtedly. And this is all based on this uh, assumption that uh, COVID is going to be ravaging through the population right up through 2025, really forever. So we need to reconfigure society, our economy, our home life, our work life, everything uh, because of the virus. Yes. Right? So, um, yes. So they ended with the shape of things to come. Patrick, uh, where have you heard that? phrase before. The title of a book that I read a very long time ago. It is indeed. Here it is. H.G. Wells, The Shape of Things to Come. If anybody, if you can't be bothered to read the book, you want to watch a movie instead, then watch the 1936 version, uh, which is just called Things to Come. Uh, it's really it's really a dystopian future based on economic collapse, uh, the potential for war, and, and what was it? There was some kind of viral pandemic, I seem to believe, as well. You really? Know? Interesting. Yeah. So it's interesting that the BBC chose to end their uh, little propaganda piece with that particular phrase. Because the BBC themselves have never been involved in, in propaganda or social conditioning or anything like that. They uh, wouldn't do that. No they, no, they wouldn't do that. And absolutely keep that in mind because we're coming back to that point a little bit later in the programme. Um, so uh, if that's the shape of things to come in the UK, uh, perhaps we get some indication of the th shape of things to come in the immediate future uh, from what's going on in Australia, Patrick. Well, indeed. Let's look at the most extreme example of an authoritarian lockdown. This is in Australia. This is the state of Victoria. They've declared last week, uh, the week before, a state of disaster. And a lot of people have probably seen reports of this, but it's been slightly muted in Europe. Uh, in the U.S. A lot of people aren't aware of what's going on there. But in Australia, people are very aware of what's going on. So a massive lockdown, of course, Melbourne being the biggest city there. They're in a winter season right now, mm -hmm. being in the southern hemisphere. But let's look at what's uh, on tap for this. This is uh, Daniel Andrews. He is the uh, boss in Victoria, Australia. And uh, if you look closely, look at the background. And we just wanted to highlight this. Um, staying apart keeps us together. So they're really on with the messaging there. So you can see this is a big production. And just to remind people, um, that's Daniel Andrews, not the person uh, doing the sign language next door. It's always confusing. Uh, the sign language people tend to get more um, screen space and billing uh, than the actual speaker. So we just pointed out for some of our more challenged uh, viewers and uh, watchers there. But let's look at what's on tap here with the territorial lockdown that Daniel Andrews has uh, imposed. Initial, this was all kicked off because of an initial surge of 671 new cases. Of course, there's been more after that. They've gone and done massive testing in, in Victoria and in, in Australia. So obviously, they're going to be getting uh, more positive coronavirus cases. And this kicked off this new state of disaster. So what are they imposing? An 8 p.m. mandatory curfew, mandatory muzzles, I mean masks. Sorry about that. Uh, and only one hour of exercise per day. It's kind of along the Boris Johnson physical fitness regime plan that uh, the UK rolled out. But you are allowed out for that one hour, is that right? You, I believe you are. But you have to stay within three miles of your home and you cannot visit friends. Yeah, three miles of the house. So very strict uh, in terms of so lockdown and self-isolation. But it gets more interesting. So what, how are they keeping this system in place? Well, you need cash mm -hmm. to keep it in place. So there's cash for people in, quote, insecure work. These are non-essential workers or gig workers with no access to sick leave. That's quite a few people, I would imagine. $300 payments uh, were available for people awaiting test results. 
there was a little bonus there if you've been tested and one thousand five hundred payments were available if they tested positive. So that's, that's fifteen hundred dollar payments. Yes, yes. fifteen hundred dollars. So there's a little cash incentive there to possibly test positive. You'll pretty much um, you know increase your money fivefold, I think. Yeah. So that's not bad. And uh, what else? This is interesting here: pubs and cafes and restaurants in the six councils uh, in the areas of, of around, I believe, is Melbourne, and will stay open. And Andrews noted that while this seemed counterintuitive. To keep hospitality open, he says that hospitality was, quote, regulated, whereas people can let their guard down in their home. So try to figure that one out. Yeah. Mixed so, messages in Australia, just as we're getting here. Yeah, so they don't yes. trust you in your own house, yes. but you're okay out in the pubs and restaurants. And he's saying, don't worry, the data drives this decision. We are guided by the data. Uh, that's where the transmission is. There's all sorts of jargon new languages, new ways of talking and now analyzing this. This is interesting, Michael. Australian Defense Forces door knocking 800 properties of anyone who's supposed to be self-isolating but were not at home. And they, uh, uh, anyone like that will be referred to to the Victorian police. I mean, this is incredible, the regime that they're laying down here. Uh, but again, we're seeing very similar, uh, you know, the, the, the cooperation between the military and the civilian forces. Yes. And, okay, the, the military don't seem to be able to actually do anything. They knock on the door to see if there's somebody in. They can't actually act, so they refer that back to the police to do something about but it. But the optics of that, to have troops doing door-to-door -door knocking to make sure people are, quote, self-isolating. Yes. I mean, it's, it's hugely authoritarian, I think, and it's no exaggeration. But it gets even worse, as if it could get worse, um, and back to our uh, film references, Micah, the Minority Report comes to mind here. Victorian police arrest Melbourne anti-mask rally organizers ahead of protests. So is this pre-crime? Well, Facebook, in the age of Facebook, yes, they can do pre-crime. And what they've done is arrested people here for organizing a protest. Uh, well, before the protest happened, Facebook event was called on people to march in opposition to the city's six-week shutdown and claimed to be part of a broader uh, protest movement. So, of course, the media has jumped all over this, saying that good on the police. They've gone and stopped this potentially broader movement of planned protests. So it's, it's worded in such a way, Mike, that it, it, people who generally go along with government diktats will sort of applaud this sort of uh -huh. uh, situation by the police. But... Uh, it goes on just to describe how it was uh, rolled out. Let's, this was from the Facebook post. Let's blow this one up and fill up the streets to show these criminals we won't give up our country and livelihoods without a fight, the event description reads. And it had, this is funny, the media noted it had 100 confirmed attendees and 400 expressions of interest. Wow. <laughs> so they're really checking the, the, the metrics on the Facebook events and kind of blowing that up to make it seem like uh, it's significant. This could have been a non-event, but the police have moved in to, to arrest them anyway. So that's kind of a little bit disturbing to say the least, Mike. Uh, <laughs> but it, let's, let's look at what else they've got here. Now this is when it gets really interesting. COVID denier, notice the language the media yeah. is using here. COVID denier is arrested in Melbourne. And so what is this all about? Well, something happened uh, earlier last week that uh, caught the news. This is Eve Black, and this is how the media describe her, a conspiracy theorist who believes uh, the COVID-19 is a hoax, first made headlines last week after she filmed herself refusing questions at a border crossing uh, 
between provinces. So she refused to roll down her window and speak to the police. And uh, according to the, the police, they said the police had no choice. They were forced to smash through her car window to arrest the 28-year-old with the police saying they had to do it after she refused to speak to them. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. Yeah. So she refused to speak to him, refused to roll down the window, and they said we had no choice but to smash her car window. Now, is that is that potentially authoritarian here? Uh, I think it's more than potentially. It's more than potentially. So she refused to wind down her window and get out of the vehicle, which I believe would be in your right. I mean, especially since... I mean, what is what is better social distancing, Mike, than being in your car with your window rolled up? Uh, so where are the police's heads at? I think they really lost the plot uh, in Australia, in Victoria, uh, particularly. But let's let's look at this. So let's let's not be squeamish here, and uh, let's call it Australia has moved into full tilt fascism, and that's really the only way that we can describe it. And by the way, using this this language is quite dangerous as well because the, the mainstream media this is sky news in australia have used this term denier so anybody that that they can label as a quote covid denier this could be questioning anything like questioning the efficacy of the policy questioning the science well the use of the word denier is clearly intended to associate you in some way with holocaust denial Th that and it's also a religious term so it, the that would be like the equivalent of blasphemy. Mm -hmm. So really, in this sense, you could say COVID, COVID lockdowns have become a type of a secular religion uh, for society. Certainly governments are playing it like this, mm -hmm. and the media is playing it as well. So really, looking at this situation in Australia, Mike, it's not really you know a stretch to say if he was around, uh, the Gestapo would approve, I think, of what's going on in Australia. He would approve. Let me see your papers, please. Can you be out jogging today? You've gone over your one allotted hour. Mm. So this is where Australia is at. It's usually worrying. So let's let's move on and see what else uh, is on tap. So let's look. Let's take a closer look, though. This is what kicked it off. This is within the first week of the lockdown. These are the deaths: one woman in her fifties, two men in their seventies, three men and one woman in their eighties, two women in their nineties. Okay, that was initially a total of eight died from or with COVID. We're not sure mm -hmm. whether they were they died from COVID or with COVID. Obviously, do you think someone in their 90s would have other comorbidities? Probably a safe bet to say they would, Mike. Mm -hmm. But the media in Australia are not talking about comorbidities. This is almost banned from the conversation now. It's just COVID, COVID, COVID only. So, and let's also remind people that all of the elderly who've died were in care homes, okay? So again, this is not different than the situation we're seeing in other countries, in the UK, in the United States. This is not a, a health crisis for the general population. This is specifically for a target demographic, a vulnerable demographic, you could call them, okay? But, but even in absolute terms, those numbers don't justify uh, what has taken place there. Even if there were people in their 20s, yeah. it wouldn't justify that level of state uh, authoritarian crackdown. So, but let's, let's look at the numbers here. Now, where does this sit uh, in terms of the global league tables, uh, Mike? Let's take a look at the numbers here. This is from John Hopkins uh, University, I believe. And this is COVID-19 deaths per 100,000 uh, populations around the world. And we've, they've included Victoria and uh, 
uh, New South Wales, Australia, I believe, and the country of Australia. So you can see at the top, you know, there's you know the United States. They've highlighted uh, 48. Well, incredibly, the United Kingdom is second on that <laughs> list there. Yeah, on, on the World League tables, yes. yeah. The UK is doing really well. They're, they're at the top. It's probably the only thing they're at the top at, really, in the Global League tables. But the U.S. is creeping up there, nipping at the heels of, uh, of the U.K. and Belgium. But, you know, 48 per 100,000, so deaths per, per 100,000 population. But let's look at where is, where is Australia? Oh, they're right down there at the bottom, Mike. Mm -hmm. uh, and here's Victoria, specifically, 2.62 deaths per 100,000 population. So that's not a lot, mm -hmm. really. I mean, certainly it's not enough to want to lock down the whole territory or mm -hmm. province. Uh, and do the, the amount of economic damage is just, uh, you know, incalculable at this point. But let's move down. Here's Australia as a country, 1.02 deaths per 100,000. So is that really a crisis? That's the question. You know, what sort of a crisis, what sort of a state of disaster is Australia in? Or is this more theater? Uh, well, th this is a very good question. And of course, when we, we reported on the program, Manchester's similar, uh, calling on, d describing it as a, as a disaster situation and they had to take serious action. And it's exactly the same situation in Manchester and other parts of the UK. There are no... The cases might be going up, we're testing more, but there's no indication from uh, the government or from local governments about uh, whether, about how those cases are uh, turning into actual hospital uh, uh, admissions or deaths. And that's what matters. Uh, and this is what matters. So yeah. if, if what they're saying is that they are about saving lives and keeping the load off the NHS, then they've got to demonstrate that there's a potential demand on the NHS here, and there is no demand on the NHS in the UK at this point, but we're calling uh, Manchester a disaster area. Uh, there certainly doesn't seem to be in Victoria, yet they're calling it a state of emergency or disaster. Uh, there's no justification for this at all. It is a psychological operation, as far as I, as I can see. It's driven by the fact that people are living in a state of perpetual fear at the moment. Uh, and, uh, well, what can we do to address that? Well, the, the first thing is that, you know, this uh, focusing on cases, like you said, rather than hospitalizations and deaths, this is the wrong way to frame uh, what's going on. And uh, comorbidities, this is important. It's kind of important. And what, what they're looking at in Australia, only 221 people to date nationwide since the beginning of the crisis, a population of 26 million uh, have died, supposedly died of COVID-19, that's mm -hmm. debatable out of that 200, okay? So there's, there's alarmist headlines across the media. We're seeing this in Australia, of course, is the most extreme example, but we're also seeing it in other countries. And the government are attempting, it looks like they're attempting in some way to collapse certain sectors of the economy. Now, people will say that they're not intentionally doing that, but but they're not doing anything to save or rescue those sectors. Of well, the I, I'm going to say they are intentionally doing that, and just in a little bit in the program, in a couple of uh, items' time, we'll be showing an example of that. And lastly, the last point I'll make, Mike, I think that governments and those opportunists who are really cashing in on this pandemic are using elderly to uh, as an excuse or as a pretext uh, to shift uh, operations to shift government operations into kind of an authoritarian mode. Mm -hmm. They're using uh, a vulnerable elderly population. They're amplifying and over-amplifying uh, deaths 
of people in care, Mike, that quite frankly, if you look at the statistics, it's very likely at a certain age with certain pre-existing health conditions, they were going to die within six months in many cases. Mm -hmm. So all of the, if you blame COVID, COVID has only accelerated that process a few months. Is that really worth locking down economies, uh, shutting schools down, completely just wiping out whole sections of, of the uh, social economic uh, system that a country has? Mm -hmm. It really, you can't rightfully say with good faith that that is the correct thing to do. And yet this is what we're seeing. Uh, absolutely. Now, one of the questions that everybody should be asking at the moment is if there are all these new cases, if, these, if the numbers of cases are going through the roof, which they're not, but they're being presented as, the, as they are, then why are people not ending up in hospital as they were back in April and in May? Uh, and maybe we get another clue from yet another scientific paper here. Uh, this one is selective and cross-reactive SARS-CoV-2 T-cell uh, epitopes in unexposed humans. Uh, and here's the key uh, section out of the abstract. We demonstrate a range of pre-existing memory CD4 plus T cells that are cross-reactive with comparative affinity to SARS-CoV-2 and the common cold coronaviruses HCoV OC43, HCoV 229E, HCoV NL63 or HCoV HKU1. Now we've been covering this issue uh, a number of times. Uh, T cell immunity, very, very important part of the immune system. Uh, T cells found in COVID-19 patients bode well from long-term immunity. This is from a couple of months back, also in science. Uh, and uh, uh, we were questioning, if you remember, a, a month or two ago about why the, the government is focusing on antibodies rather than T cells, um, because, of course, antibodies uh, aren't a permanent solution. T-cells give long-term immunity, provide long-term immunity. Antibodies don't, and we were demonstrating that antibodies don't uh, from a number of, uh, of papers, including this one, making the point that we observed that virus-specific antibodies are detectable in 100% of patients two weeks after onset, uh, but that those reached a plateau two weeks after and then declined in the majority of patients. Uh, furthermore, they report that neutralizing antibodies were undetectable in 56 percent of asymptomatic carriers. So the point we were making here is if, if our tests are based on antibodies, uh, then, uh, you know, for, for immunity in the future, and I'm not talking about uh, positive tests now, but if our future tests for immunity are based on antibodies and antibodies don't stick around for too long, then of course people find themselves uh, unable to demonstrate that they're immune. Um, and uh, so in that particular paper, uh, they demonstrated uh, the way that this works after 59 days, 54.3, sorry, 54.5% of people had were undetectable for antibodies. After 74 days, 63.6% were undetectable. So if we uh, if we come back onto the T cell issue again, uh, there that particular paper's point was this. Importantly, we detected SARS-CoV-2 reactive T CD4 T cells in 40 to 60% of unexposed individuals. So that was the previous paper that we were showing. We've just shown you a second paper. There seems to be more and more evidence to demonstrate that there is cross uh, immunity from other coronavirus, co common cold coronaviruses. Um, and, uh, you know, we reported this a few weeks ago as well. It's Professor Sarah Gilbert, Oxford University. It's possible that we're underestimating natural or already acquired immunity to this virus, uh, that uh, there's certainly evidence that people have not developed antibodies but have developed a T-cell response. 
and this was Sir John Bell. These were both giving evidence to the House of Commons uh, Select Committee. Uh, so there's probably background T-cell immunity in people before they see the coronavirus. These T-cells get a bit tired once you're beyond the age of 65 and not be, may not be as effective as at removing a virus. Older people, of course, more susceptible to serious, serious results. Um, so uh, th this, is the, this is the issue. Patrick, more and more evidence developing that T-cell immunity for long-term immunity is the more important uh, measure. Uh, and yet we're heading towards uh, antibody testing. And I might add the recent Singapore study shows more or less the same thing, Mike, uh, as the other studies that you've shown. What does this say? It, if you combine the su subsiding of antibodies in the system, right, and then you add the T-cell natural immunity that, that everybody has, this is bad news for the idea that we must have a vaccine in order to achieve herd immunity. I mean, this really torpedoes that whole concept, doesn't it? Exactly. And I don't think the establishment were expecting that before this happened. Um, and I, took, I take my hat off to scientists out there that are doing real science, that are actually doing real useful research and not just waiting for the panacea, the miracle jab uh, to arrive that's going to, quote, save everybody from COVID-19. There is a big argument to debate now that we have natural immunity, and more so than people realized before. I'm sure doctors knew about this, scientists knew about it, but it wasn't really uh, uh, common knowledge in the public. And now it's becoming so because of this. Now the question is, is the media, are politicians going to react to those facts, to those papers, to those discoveries, and change their policies, or are they going to bow at the altar of Big Pharma and Bill Gates? Uh, I think they're, go they're not going to react and change their policies. They are going to react because they're going to attack anybody that's pushing forward that kind of information. They're going to call those people uh, COVID deniers or anti-vaxxers. Mm -hmm. um, they're going to put labels on them and attempt to discredit them through personal ad hominem attacks. Um, and they are, they are absolutely bowing to the wishes of Big Pharma in that respect. In the same way that they've attacked uh, anybody that... Uh uh, said that uh, hydroxychloroquine was a, uh, a useful therapeutic or prophylaxis uh, for, uh, for, for treating COVID. So, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, uh, now of course, uh, the big furore at the moment is all about the number of cases. And, of course, those number of cases are being identified because of the number of tests. So I just uh, thank you to the person who sent this through to me. I just wanted to uh, highlight this article from the New York Times. Now, this is from 2007. Uh, and the... Uh, the headline here is Faith in Quick Test Leads to Epidemic That Wasn't. Um, so this is about a doctor called Brooke Herndon, uh, an internist at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in the United States. Uh, she could not stop coughing for two weeks. Uh, it started in mid-April in 2006. She coughed seemingly nonstop, followed by another week when she coughed sporadically, annoying, uh, she said, everyone who worked with her. Uh, before long, uh, Dr. Catherine Kirkland, an infectious disease specialist in Dartmouth, had a chilling thought. Could she be seeing the start of a whipping cough epidemic? Uh, there were others coughing. It was the start of a bizarre episode, the paper says, the New York Times says here in the medical center, the story of the epidemic that wasn't. And for months, nearly everyone involved thought the medical center had had a huge whipping cough out outbreak uh, with extensive ramifications. Uh, a thousand healthcare workers were given a preliminary test. They were furloughed from work. 
until the results were in. 142 people, including Dr. Herndon, were told they appeared to have the disease. Thousands were given antibiotics and a vaccine. Uh, and hospital beds were taken out of commission, including some intensive care beds. And then eight months later, healthcare workers were, they, it's described here as dumbfounded to receive an email message from the hospital administration informing them that the whole thing had been a false alarm. And the basis, the reason for it was because they rushed through a test. Uh, and this is what the article says here. Uh, they placed too much faith in a quick and highly select, sensitive molecular test that led them astray. Well, I'm just going to remind you again what we reported on Monday, uh, that, of course, the UK government now run, moving forward with two tests, which are going to provide results within 90 minutes, uh, one from DNA Nudge here uh, and, uh, and the other one from an organisation called Nanopore. Uh, and so Oxford Nanopore Technologies partnering with UK government to roll, roll out Lampore, a new generation of COVID-19 tests. So both of those tests, one a DNA test, uh, and one, uh, uh, I can't remember, the, another type of test anyway, uh, due to provide results within 90 minutes. And I just wonder, are we again moving towards the scenario that that hospital saw in 2006? Uh, we absolutely are again moving in that direction. This is the same complaint that um, a, a lot of African uh, uh, activists and medical professionals made during the AIDS crisis in places like South Africa. They had these rapid uh, express uh, the tests that they rolled out and you know hugely prone to error Mike and what what came out of that was the determination that you cannot use any of these express tests to they don't determine whether you have an active virus or an active in, infection there's there's almost no way that they can possibly do that on the basis of that test alone so it can't be used as a diagnostic test it can't and I'm I'm saying that I think that is a fact Okay, it's not really, if anyone wants to challenge that statement or that reality, feel free to go ahead. But those, that is what those tests are. They don't tell you much. And in fact, uh, they are prone to false positives. And in fact, there's a, there's, a, there's a debate, Mike, of what you are actually testing. Are you testing a specific novel coronavirus? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, this special COVID-19 supposed coronavirus, or will the test pick up other uh, common cold or coronaviruses that are in your system or things that look like them mm. uh, that, that the test could interpret as such. That's not clear either. Okay, and Anybody that says that these are slam dunk 100% accurate uh, diagnostic tests, I don't think that's true. Mm. And I think a lot of uh, serious medical uh, professionals would agree with that. Um, okay, well, speaking of vaccines, uh, another deal done with the British government here. This is uh, Val Neva. Um, and uh, well, what uh, this is a French vaccine maker. Uh, they have uh, announced, and the British government announced uh, at the same time, actually uh, on Wednesday, that uh, Britain is investing more than ten million pounds to increase production of their vaccine, which is uh, due uh, to be uh, available sometime in the latter part of 2021. Now, what's interesting is that uh, they seem to have Britain seems to have agreed in principle to buy 60 million doses. Uh, with an option to purchase 40 million more if the vaccine proves to be safe. Uh, and I just wonder, is that the same arrangement that they've come to with uh, AstraZeneca? Because, of course, at this point, we still don't know. AstraZeneca has been given the go-ahead to go into production on their vaccine even before the clinical trials are finished. Uh, on the basis, Matt Hancock said, to make sure that there was a stockpile there in the event that approval is given. 
And so we're not clear whether in AstraZeneca's case that's because they've been given this kind of deal where they get the money no matter whether the approval is given at the end of the day or whether they've been assured that the, that the approval is going to be given no matter the outcome of the clinical trial. So this still hasn't been answered. Um, and uh, so anyway, uh, another vaccine manufacturer, another deal done and more taxpayer money going out for something which potentially doesn't work. Well, some of them are saying they're not doing it for profit, Mike. They're saying they're only... Uh, AstraZeneca is saying that. It's, it's only, for not profit. Yeah. Only covering our costs. Yes. But for how long? What, for the first round of, of doses? Right. Or, you know, <laughs> but they're still making a profit on R&D, though. I mean, I can't imagine they're Well, they're doing, still getting their salaries paid, and nobody's doing this on a, uh, on a voluntary basis, for sure. It's not pro bono, no, altruistic no. Uh, no. charity, is it? No. So, that's another misleading talking point. Now, let's let's look at, there's a lot of medical experts, Mike. You've probably seen them on the TV. Yes. Everyone, there's there's celebrity doctors, there's talk shows that bring in NHS doctors, you know, whether they practice in this field or not, but they could be somebody who's a GP or, you know, a cardiologist, and they become COVID experts immediately uh, when they're wheeled on to the media uh, uh, stage. So this is one of those experts, Mike. This is Dr. Amir Khan. You probably see him quite a lot if you watch mainstream British television. This is Good Morning Britain, uh, and he made a quite. So this a, is ITV's morning breakfast uh, news program. I think so. Yeah, yes. Yeah. He, now he's made a. He, he is a kind of a go-to guy on COVID. He doesn't have any specific specialty in virology or anything like that. He's just a GP, just a general practitioner. He runs a surgery in Bradford, I think. But he's an expert on COVID. Good. Uh, for ITV. So he's the medical expert, and this is what he said uh, just this past week. He said that men can take women's birth control pills to protect against COVID. He's, Excellent. He's right. making the argument that estrogen, estrogen uh, can be beneficial to protect you from the virus, so that we should uh, men should run out and maybe think about taking contraceptive pills. Uh, get on the pill. So guys, get on the pill, and they'll protect you against COVID. That's what ITV's saying. Now, I retweeted that video from their account, and it went completely viral. Myself and I think Simon Dolan and other people retweeted it. It went viral, and guess what uh, Good Morning Britain did after that? Took it down. Of course, they took it down. You can't find it on YouTube. doesn't exist on Twitter. Now, if they were really proud and could stand by their medical expert, Dr. Amir Khan, they wouldn't have pulled the video from social media, but they pulled the video. What does that tell you, folks? It tells you that they couldn't stand by what he said. Mm. So, yes, you would be risking man boobs, men, if you decided to take the pill. So think very carefully about taking Dr. Amir Khan from Bradford's advice on how to fight COVID. Absolutely. Now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community uh, and uh, there are options to help us out there and that would be very much uh, appreciated. Now I do have to let you know that uh, we are going to be taking a summer holiday this year. Unfortunately none of us will be going to anywhere that any desert islands with uh, the sun looking like that uh, but the office will be closed from the 17th to 28th of August and there will be no news program during those two weeks uh, but we will be back on Monday the 31st of August. So next Friday's programme, Patrick, uh, will be the last before the summer break. Uh, and I just want to say a massive thank you to everybody for your support. It has been amazing this year and uh, it's much appreciated. Now, where does that take us? Economy, Patrick, 
Uh, and uh, well, we'll all be glad to know that the Bank of England has uh, released its monetary policy report yesterday uh, for this quarter. Uh, and uh, well, let's have a look and see what they're saying about the state of the economy as a result of uh, lockdown and so on. Um, so here we go. Uh, as you can see, uh, there has been quite a dip, um, or at least it's still forecast to be quite a dip. Uh, but it's going to bounce back amazingly in quarter three, Patrick. Is it now? Uh, absolutely magically. Uh, and uh, so we don't need to worry about things. So the, 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 the dead cat has springs in his boots. Well, that's what they seem to be implying. Uh, but it's not all good news. Uh, but one of the things that they thought was good news was this. Some types of spending have recovered to close to their levels from the start of the year. So the red line there is for staples. Now, unless we're going to stop feeding ourselves uh, and going to switch the electricity off and so on, uh, I think it's unlikely that on a long-term basis we're going to see any kind of collapse in the level of staples that we actually buy. Patrick, it's mm -hmm. sort of important that we eat and drink and so on. That will remain steady. And, and as you can see, it more or less has. Uh, it's the other, now, many of the other areas there, and they've got on their uh, uh, delayable items, work-related items, and, and social items, obviously the social items, like hospitality and so on, doing the worst of the lot. Um, but they're all well, still well below uh, where they were in, uh, at the beginning of March. Um, and uh, whether that there's any kind of recovery in that, uh, well, the general consensus is, even from the Bank of England here, that that's going to be a very long drawn out affair, but they'd still try to, you know, imply that things in their headlines, at least that things are okay. So in this particular chart, they're saying in-store retail sales have fallen, but this has been offset by a rise in non-store sales. So they're talking about online, Amazon and so on. Uh, well, I'm sorry, but the, the big red lines are quite significantly bigger than the smaller blue, line, uh, blue bars at the top. So the online sales aren't really making up for the off for the offline sales. They're not offsetting, really. No, that's, that's offsetting misleading, is absolutely misleading. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so let's move on to the next one here. Consumer confidence has picked up. Uh, do you see a massive pickup there, Patrick, on that graph? Well, that's all relative, Mike, to what your baseline is in terms of confidence. If you were absolutely in the doldrums uh, three months ago and it was the end of the world, um, an improvement in confidence could be slightly better, like you're out of solitary confinement and you're into general population in the prison and you actually get to have three squares a day. Yeah. That would be a big boost in confidence, and the government was very keen to amplify that boost in confidence from down in the mud to just on the shore rather than walking upright on land. Well, based on that particular graph, uh, we're not even at the shore yet. Um, so we're not even close to walking on land, as you put it. So let's uh, move on to the next one. Investment intentions. There's been no dead cat bounce uh, with respect to investment intentions. Uh, so from the, from the business side, at least, uh, this is a pretty uh, depressing picture. Uh, now, this is what uh, Andrew Bailey had to say uh, about this. First of all, he said, it's important that we move forward and not keep people in unproductive jobs. Th the key point here is moving forward, not keeping people in unproductive jobs. You were talking about this earlier in the program, Patrick. They are intending to shut down sections of the economy here. And they are not going to read. And, you know, the, the whistleblower that came to us, right? Two, three months ago, Brian pushed out, put, pushed out the uh, information from the anonymous whistleblower that we have uh, who said that uh, within the Tory party they had said 
there was a question about whether they should be restarting sections of the economy. This is now being expressed publicly by Andrew Bailey. Uh, he went on to say, talking about the furlough scheme, he said, it's been a very successful scheme, uh, but the Chancellor's right to say that we have to look forward now. Uh, I don't think we should be locking the economy down in a state that it pre-existed in. So they, are, they have no intention of going back or trying to recover an economy that existed before this process began. And why not? That's the question. Well, the question, the answer to that is it was expressed by Mark Carney before, uh, before this all began. They, are, uh, they have been pushing forward with the New Green Deal, and the New Green Deal absolutely does not permit any organization that is not carbon neutral uh, to exist. And if you remember what Carney was saying in January and February, he was making it absolutely clear that any business that was not carbon neutral or working towards being carbon neutral in the short term uh, would be bankrupted, and that included any banks that were offering credit to the companies like that. Mm -hmm. So uh, we are starting to see policy, which was already in place before COVID, absolutely being ruled out as a result of COVID. So there is an agenda there. Yes. And, and so COVID is hugely convenient uh, to, in the timing and how it's come about. Uh, that certain governments, particularly leading Western governments, are really running point on that agenda. Uh, and here they are restructuring their own economies, supposedly because of a virus. Yes. But really it's not because of the virus. It's because of a, an agenda that was already, already in place. Already yes. in place. Yes. People need to ask some serious questions about that. Absolutely. Now, on uh, Wednesday, of course, we were talking about censorship and NewsGuard. Uh, well, let's move on with this because here's Twitter. Uh, new labels for government and state-affiliated media accounts. Uh, so Twitter has announced that it's going to start flagging up uh, state media, state-affiliated media and journalists to let users know where governments might ex exercise control over opinions. So let's see what Twitter had to say. We believe that people have the right to know when a media account is affiliated directly or indirectly with a state actor. Twitter will no longer amplify state-affiliated media accounts or their tweets through our recommendation systems, including the home timeline, notifications, and search. So my immediate question, Patrick, was, well, what about the BBC? Because clearly this is, sort of, this is aimed at, at Russia and China, but, but what about the BBC? Well, in their statement, they say this, state-financed media organizations with editorial independence like the BBC in the UK or NPA and NPR in the US, for example, will not be labeled. Wow. So that's a clear double standard. Well, first of all, I dispute 100% that the BBC is in any way editorially independent. They are demonstrating on a daily basis that they do nothing but push forward with the government editorial line. Um, so they can, they can, the BBC can claim editorial independence, uh, but it may be, it may, there might be a subtle difference here, Patrick. It may be that the British government is not imposing editorial demands on the BBC. The BBC is choosing. Mm -hmm. is choosing, making that choice that they will echo the government line and no other line. And the intelligence service, the five, the five Eyes intelligence services line as well. Absolutely. That, that's pretty obvious if you look at a lot of the stories that we've covered over, over the last few years. The, the BBC are completely on point with whatever the uh, intelligence services uh, objectives and goals are in terms of national security or, you know, stringing up Jeremy Corbyn as a Russian agent. Uh, that was exposed, actually, right. that that was an agenda by the security services. 
that was in in the, in the Times, I believe, uh, exposed that. Yes. Or one paper exposed that before the general election. Um, um, so anyway, let's move on. They say state-affiliated media is defined as outlets where the state exercises control over editorial content through financial resources, direct or indirect political pressures, and or control over production and distribution. Unlike independent media, state-affiliated media frequently use their news coverage as a means to advance a political agenda. BBC. Now, this is, applies to the BBC in two instances here. First of all, state-affiliated media is defined as outlets where the state exercises control over editorial content. There is a process in place at the moment from the government to work out how the BBC is going to be funded in the future. This is being held over the BBC's head like a big stick right at this moment. Uh, because uh, are they going to continue to be funded by the license fee or not? This is a question uh, which in the medium to long term is under discussion. So the BBC is being held to ransom there, although I don't think that's necessarily needed, as we just said. But the other thing, as a means to advance a political agenda, the BBC is absolutely advancing a political agenda uh, in everything that it does. And the second paragraph, Mike, is a lie by Twitter, and I can't believe they would make such a statement. They said, unlike independent media, state-affiliated media frequently uses their news coverage as a means to advance a political agenda. The second part of that is true. The first part of that sentence, Mike, is not true. Independent media, what are they calling independent media? Corporate media? Yes. Mainstream media? They absolutely advance uh, a political agenda in almost everything that they do. You can't tell me The Guardian doesn't advance a political agenda when it runs uh, fictional stories about uh, uh, by Luke Harding about Paul Manafort visiting Julian Assange in the basement of the Ecuadorian embassy. I mean, that's a, a fabricated Russian story that was run on the front page, pure fake news, for the express intent of creating more tension between the West mm -hmm. and Russia and demonizing WikiLeaks, preparing them for 17 indictments from the United States Department of Justice. I mean, that is just as dirty as journalism can get mm -hmm. and as politicized as it can get. And yet that is just standard fare for the Murdoch press, mm -hmm. for the Times. Look at all the hit pieces the Times have been mm -hmm. running against people that they want to attack in the independent media. Yeah. So the, the Times is not independent media. They're corporate media. They're in bed with government. So for Twitter to be playing the arbiter of what is media and what is press, the same way that NewsGuard seems to understand the media and the journalistic ecosystem. They absolutely don't either. They, they, they do understand and they're, they're basically playing fast and loose with their sort of categorizations. But certainly Twitter doesn't. And by the way, to restrict people from search, okay, is what they're saying. Yes. That is a, a massive crime uh, by Twitter. I mean, that, that's really stepping over the red line because whether it's state media or whether it's independent, people have a right to find that information mm -hmm. for a number of different reasons. If not to criticize it, if it's so mm -hmm. bad, if state media is so bad and such a, a, a horrible threat to democracies and to the, you know, the, the innocent public, certainly people should be able to look at it, criticize it, deconstruct it. I don't see a lot of deconstruction going on especially with RT stories. They're having tr problems finding all the falsehoods and all the sort of fake news or bad reporting in RT reporting because there hardly is any. RT well, except for COVID. Oh, yeah. yeah, well, we, we've criticized RT on, on their COVID reporting early on. But on the whole, in terms of international news, it's pretty straight down the line. Mm. Okay, In fact, might have a better record than the BBC mm. in terms of fairness and accuracy. 
but they don't like it because it's Russian. So there's a geopolitical angle to this. Absolutely. this it's not about the truth. This is about that move by Twitter is about geopolitics. It's to marginalize, and the targets are clearly China and Russia. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that uh, any of those countries are whiter than white when it comes to producing propaganda, but let me, let me, let me just be honest about it, Mike. The, the, the United States and the UK have the most awesome propaganda machine mm. ever constructed in the history of media in the world. I mean, nothing holds a candle to it. The Chinese are in the Little League. You know, the Russians are in T-ball compared to Britain and the U.S. when it comes to actually producing propaganda and real fake news, the kind of fake news that kicks off wars. Mm. I mean, that's what the U.S., the U.K., and the NATO states do. So I, they're not even, you know, they're in a league on their own, basically. Twitter will not reflect that truth. Um, so somebody in the chat box there asking us any updates on NewsGuard. Well, the only update I've got for you so far is that uh, the U.K. column now does have a red a red badge. Anybody that has NewsGuard installed in their browser and go to ukcolumn.org, you will find a nice red badge from NewsGuard telling you to be very, very careful about reading anything that you, that you see there. Um, so um, I consider that a bit of a badge of honor, Patrick, uh, but we'll have more on, you, on NewsGuard itself uh, in the not-too-distant future. We should get some red badges made yeah, up. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Red, red uh, shields. This is a, this is a good shields. idea. Uh, but uh, Plymouth Live here, TV license bailiffs threat for pensioners who don't pay up. So the BBC started to get really aggressive. What's this about? Well, this is because uh, people over 75 were entitled to a free TV license up until the 1st of August, uh, and that has been scrapped. Uh, and so they're now getting the, the, the heavy threats out against uh, anybody over the age of 75. That's it. Go after those pensioners. Go after those pensioners. Uh, stress them out even more. Kill them if you can, but uh, go after the money anyway. Now, anybody that's over 75 and in any way concerned about this, I do recommend uh, heading over to the uh, defund the BBC website. Uh, the big headline on their website is tired of paying for BBC waste and bias. Have a look at the frequently asked questions section because they have got some very good advice about how to deal with TV licensing and particularly uh, TV license inspectors and anybody that implies some kind of right of access to your home. Uh, clearly, if you're sitting watching TV uh, in your front room and they're able to see in from the outside, then you probably bang to rights. Uh, but there's some good advice on there which should hopefully take any fear that anybody over the age of 75 has. Uh, of getting a knock on the door over not having a TV license. Yeah, there's way you can look on YouTube. There's ways of dealing with that situation. A lot of people have successfully navigated yes. those difficult scenarios. Yes. Uh, and now I just wanted to add, and with the BBC again here, Patrick, uh, because uh, this had me in stitches. Uh, this is Christopher Steele, ex-spy, says more must be done to stop Russian interference. Uh, and there he is uh, with a, a, a nice... Uh, Photograph from PA uh, with a photoshopped mask on. I wouldn't uh, blame him if he was wearing a mask, Mike, because I wouldn't want to be recognized <laughs> in public either if I was Christopher Steele after yeah. the whopper that he drifted out. Well, uh, well, the, the, the whoppers, because many, many whoppers. But anyway, there he is with his mask on. Uh, and uh, so uh, what, what is he saying here? Uh, the UK has been behind the curve in deterring Russian activity, uh, he said. Uh, and uh, he went on to say, uh, say this, Moscow aims to create great polarity, great partisanship and divisions within political life, the likes of which we've not seen in democracies before. Now, Patrick, yeah. <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but 
is is this not is this not exactly what he did with his dossier into the United States? I think he did. I think uh, he tried to create divisions and uh, tried to create partisanship and you know basically and and, and, and and he was interfering in a foreign election. He was interfering in a foreign election. He's guilty of the very thing that they've accused Russia of doing, which is election meddling and interfering in the democratic process of a you know, free country like the United States. Christopher Steele himself is the author, Rand Point, on that basically a made-up document with all sorts of sort of made-up sort of scenarios. And, but and despite the, the fact he's been utterly discredited, uh, the BBC still wants to promote him and his narrative about Russia of, uh, in 2020. So he's been discredited utterly in the United States. He's being sued by one of the people that he accused of uh, for libel. Uh, and, uh, uh, and that court case hasn't quite finished being heard. By the way, uh, unfortunately, the, uh, the person who was taking him to court for libel, uh, that, that person's lawyer, uh, gave the Zoom link out uh, to several other people for the, because there was a, a Zoom conference uh, made available to the press and perhaps some people that witnessed the, uh, the, the, the libel trial that weren't entitled to. There's a bit of a, bit of a problem there. Uh, we'll see whether that, that has any, oh, uh, any effect on the... Uh, or any impact on the, the eventual result. But anyway, Christopher Steele utterly discredited. So his Huawei report has to be utterly discredited. Everything that he does has been utterly discredited, but the BBC loves him. And his Litvinenko report, if uh, you, yes. you want to go further back. Absolutely. But you've got to love the moxie of this guy, Mike. He is, um, he is a success story, really, for the intelligence community, because no matter how bad you do, no matter how you know, whatever scandal or whatever turd you drop in the punch bowl, he can climb out of that punch bowl and he's up there on the rim and he's back again. I mean, what a comeback story. Wow. Christopher Steele. Inspiring. Amazing. But, yes. Okay, we will leave it there for today. Thank you very much for joining me, Patrick. Thank you for joining me, joining us. Uh, we will be back at the same time, 1 p.m. on Monday as usual. Have a great weekend and hope to see you then. Bye-bye.